This week, a lecture about mid-20th century educational films used to teach students about nuclear warfare and science. So TV was to education then what something like the internet or MOOCs or online education is to education now. Virginia Commonwealth University professor Karen Rader explained that policymakers feared the U.S. population was falling behind the Soviet Union in science education during the Cold War. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. All right, so good afternoon and welcome. Today, we're going to talk about Cold War era science education films, in particular ones that were made for TV and the classroom. Now, we've been talking about classroom films before. Uh, Really, to do any kind of history of classroom film, uh, you need to understand the scholarship in a lot of fields. So I'm going to be quoting and referencing and pulling together work that I've done, work that's been done by other historians of science, film studies people, communication studies scholars, even folklorists. So this will be particularly interdisciplinary. For reasons that should by now be obvious, uh, the topic is interdisciplinary. So in particular, we're going to return to uh, this question, right? What are the relations between art, science, and entertainment in culture, in cinema? How do they reinforce one another uh, in these particular contexts? We're going to see the movement of uh, people, the same people across institutions, right, across uh, media forms, and across uh, science. So it's all going to be kind of blending together. And also uh, science education. Obviously, in science education, what students are taught depends on what the state of the art knowledge is for that period. So we have to consider what is the scientific and technical knowledge But really, to understand this historically, we have to understand how science education is both a product and a driver of culture. And what I mean by that is that any form of science education is going to incorporate attitudes and approaches towards both education and science that are kind of predominant at the time. (coughs) So before we move way back to the 1950s, not that long ago, but I wanted to kind of unpack... uh, some assumptions that you might have when I say science on TV. So some of you are probably old enough to remember either seeing uh, the first time or watching in rerun Bill Nye, the science guy, right, Bill Nye. Bill Nye is kind of the, this generation's predominant uh, TV science educator, right? He wears the white coat, or in this case it's blue, so I'm already contradicting myself. But, uh, and he does interactive science experiments, very enthusiastic. He himself is a scientist, right? Um, or you remember uh, someone like Sheldon from The Big Bang, right? The, the science uh, sitcom is another model. Or maybe, uh, I didn't put it up here because I thought it would make me sound really old, things like ER or numbers, right? ER, the medical doctors, numbers, the mathematician working with his brother. Uh, so these are kind of uh, contemporary uh, genres and images we have of what science on TV is. But really to understand what's going on in the 1950s, you have to back up because TV was new media, uh, particularly for education. 
So TV was to education then what something like the internet or MOOCs or online education is to education now, right? It's this brave new frontier. It's not so new. Um, it really comes out of the use of 16 millimeter film in classrooms, which is something that we've already talked a little bit about for the 20s and 30s. But moving that discussion forward, what's going on in the 50s is a real massive expansion of the use of 16 millimeter film in classrooms. And that's driven in part by technology. So you see a picture there of the uh, Kodak pageant projector. The pageant projector was a new projector that Kodak invented. It was lighter, it was more portable, it was easier to thread. The film didn't burn. Always good when a, when a school system invests in it. Um, although the film did sometimes burn, but it was advertised as not burning. Um, this new, new version of classroom technology really uh, sort of fostered the expansion of the educational film industry. So film historian Jeff Alexander in his book, uh, Films You Saw in School, estimates that there were approximately 100,000 or so, give or take, films that were made in this period. And they were made by, uh, largely by educational film uh, companies. So these would be uh, companies like Coronet, Archer. We're going to see Archer today when we watch uh, Duck and Cover. Even Encyclopedia Britannica, again, just to kind of capture the new media idea that a encyclopedia producer would be branching out into uh, classroom film, kind of captures the enthusiasm and the expansion of this uh, as, a, as a technology in the classroom. So any time that a new technology is introduced into a classroom, I mean, maybe this didn't happen when teachers had their pointers, right? But any time that a new technology is introduced, in the, in particularly in the uh, post-war period, there's a little bit of hand-wringing that goes on. So you see the appearance in the 1950s of a series of books. Uh, one, this one, particular, Television and Education in the U.S., written by Dr. Charles Seipman, who is credentialed both in the School of Education and the Department of Communication. And he asks uh, the question to which the obvious answer is yes, right? Can it be that education in our time is suffering a sea change? But the use of the verb suffering is kind of instructive, right? Um, because they're really not sure. And his next question is, what is excellence in kind of classroom film and video instruction? And just as importantly, how is it absorbed? So really kind of focusing not just on the production of the knowledge, but on the consumption, the learning, uh, as we would call it. So some hand-wringing is to be expected, but there's also a lot of enthusiasm. So uh, the FCC commissioner in 1951, Frida Hennig, published a, a piece in Variety, which is a sort of trade magazine for, uh, for Hollywood and performing arts, in which she articulated her vision for television and education. Television, she said, is one of the greatest forces America has ever known for education. But she, too, then asked a kind of hedgy question. She says, are we going to let this genie serve as an unvarying diet of horror stories and cowboy daring do, i.e., are we going to let Hollywood take it over? Or can we somehow harness the genie to perform wonders of public enlightenment unequaled since the days of the Renaissance? Right? So again, you have to be kind of picturing this is what they're seeing, another Renaissance, another enlightenment uh, in television, which is something that today is uh, pretty mundane, pretty much a part of our everyday life. So part of where that enthusiasm is coming from is the very successful use of film in uh, wartime context, particularly for uh, propaganda and newsreels. So let me talk a little bit about uh, newsreels first. Newsreels were uh, shorts that were shown before movies. P 
People liked them so much that they even eventually developed dedicated newsreel theaters. You could go to a theater just to watch one after another uh, newsreel in big cities like New York and L.A. And in 1948, newsreels uh, became a television program. NBC launched a 10-minute, so not a long one, but a 10-minute uh, TV program called Camel Newsreel Theater. So something like maybe the first CNN, except it's not running 24 hours. It's running every, you know, 10 minutes every once in a while. Um, so newsreels were very popular. Propaganda films like Why We Fight. So Why We Fight was a film that was made uh, during World War II by Frank Capra, who already had had some uh, army experience, but joined back up after the bombings of Pearl Harbor and was immediately uh, grabbed by his commanding officers because by that point, he was an Oscar-winning Hollywood director, right? So uh, he, had some, uh, he had some incentive to be used in this way rather than, uh, than at the front. And so his commanding officer recruited him to do what he called, and I'm quoting now, documented factual information films that will explain to our boys in the army the principles for which we are fighting. So kind of invoking the documentary ethos, but clearly meant to persuade, right? And that's what the line is between documentary and propaganda. And Capra himself, uh, in reflections on this, talked about how his approach to this was framed as an answer to uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's uh, Triumph of the Will, which is considered to be one of, uh, one of the best, if not the best, best, in quotes, uh, propaganda films, right, of, of all time. So they've had a lot of success with, uh, with the use of film for conveying information, for persuading, for convincing. Of course, they would think that it would have more applications in the classroom, but this became even more urgent in the context of the dropping of atomic bombs uh, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, in Japan and the real escalation of what uh, several people have called the nuclear culture or the nuclear future. Right, So this nuclear future, on the one hand, right, everyone knew about this. Everyone knew that this ended the war, that it was a massive loss, loss of life. Right? Uh, it was a very grim, uh, dark scene. So that's kind of uh, the dark side of atomic culture. The thought was that in the post-war period, really harnessing nuclear energy for positive uses. So... Uh, Eisenhower gave a speech in 1953 that became known in retrospect as the Atoms for Peace speech. And this became a kind of a propaganda campaign for the peaceful uses of atomic energy. Peaceful uses of atomic energy uh, would include reactors for generating energy, but also things like um, radioisotopes. So using the reactors to create radioisotopes that then become medical tracers. So that's why you have uh, in the logo that eventually gets right made the medical uh, icon too, right? Medicine, science, engineering, agriculture, it's all going to be a part of our nuclear future. Um, just in case the speech and those methods of persuasion didn't work, uh, they also developed a series of traveling museum exhibits. So they would put them, that's an Atomic Energy Commission-sponsored exhibit, Atoms for Peace, that traveled around. So it'd be, it'd be very likely if you were a school uh, elementary or middle school student and you went to a natural history or a science museum in the 50s, that you would see one of these. And they would have things like uh, radioactive frogs, frogs that had been injected with radioisotopes, and students could handle Geiger counters and sort of 
put them over the frogs and it would start clicking, right? So some of the first interactive exhibits were, were undertaken in the context of uh, this Atoms for Peace exhibit. And that's a good example of museums as a medium reinforcing other mediums, right? Museums trying to become new just like a film is trying to become new on television. So the goal of Atoms for Peace, we find out uh, from looking at um, behind-the-scenes documents, because it wouldn't be marketed this way in public, was a kind of emotional management of the tensions that are involved in uh, the nuclear culture. So the tension being, on the one hand, escalating nuclear armament, that's kind of the, the hallmark of the Cold War period. But on the other hand, uh, uh, home front uses of atomic energy that they want to kind of spin as particularly um, uh, harmless, that they want to domesticate. So educating civilians, and in particular educating children, became a high priority. So Bo Jacobs talks about how this generation was the first generation that learned to live in a nuclear world. And you can see here, this is a quote from one of the folks at the India, Indian Springs School in Nevada, which is next to an Air Force base, right? It's a two-room school. Um, and they're not being taught to duck and cover, but duck and, I guess, hold one another. Um, this is on the cover of Collier's Magazine. And the, the person from the school is boasting that they learned how to spell Adam and bomb before they learned how to spell mother. Um, just to kind of imagine that shift, right, in uh, learning those words that had much bigger uh, cultural and social meaning and were certainly much scarier than the word uh, mother. So the federal government was interested in educating uh, a lot of civilians, but in particular a lot of children, uh, in the procedures of civil defense, in what are the actual threats of an atomic attack, what would it look like. And so they devised this film, called Duck and Cover. So what we're going to do here is watch a small clip of the introduction uh, to Duck and Cover featuring the theme song. again, you're going to want to sing. <laughs> All right. So what do you notice about that introduction? A couple of things. So I, I played through the, uh, the song uh, so that I could talk a little bit about the ways in which the production values of this, the, both the content and the production values were framed by interactions between lots of different kinds of artists and, uh, and those who were interested in conveying the actual information. So those who are interested in conveying the actual information, right, the Federal Civil Defense Authority or Association, right, cited there, School Safety Organization from the National, Education of Associ uh, National Educational Association, right, so 
government people collaborating with school teachers, collaborating with fairly high quality uh, talent that was recruited by the producers at Archer Films. So the film was written by uh, Ray Meyer and directed by Anthony Rizzo. And the jingle was written afterwards. It didn't initially start with a jingle. The jingle was written afterwards by the same team that advised see the USA in a Chevrolet. That's a, that slogan uh, it wouldn't resonate for your generation, but if you watch Mad Men, uh, I think it was sort of the advertising culture that produced these slogans that became a part of massive advertising campaigns and even in the case of the Chevrolet slogan became a hit for a pop singer named Dinah Shore, right? So... There's crossover here. Um, so it's a very upbeat and positive song. It's very memorable. We have female voices and male voices. The goal of this film, uh, Bo Jacobs talks about in his article, Atomic Kids, is to teach children how to survive an atomic attack by themselves. That's important, right? Uh, because part of what's going on here, is, there's two parts to what's going on here. On the one hand, you have to inform children what it is they're actually seeing if they see a, a nuclear attack. So you see a kind of, uh, I'm going to talk about this as kind of domesticating, but Bo Jacobs says making the threat normative, right? Um, something as scary as an atomic attack, uh, you cannot show film of two children, right? Because it's too horrifying. So instead, using the medium of uh, animation, uh, they portray the, the bright light, right? The, the light is described as a bright flash, brighter than the sun, right? And then it transitions into the animation where clearly the atomic bomb is, and the narrator is saying this in very calm tones, smashing through buildings, right? Causing wind, causing a, a, a burn uh, worse than your worst sunburn, right? So these are all ways to kind of... Uh, take this knowledge and convey it, but in a way that uh, maybe children would understand and, and would be a part of their, um, part of their world. Uh, now, the other side is not just conveying what it is that you're actually seeing, knowing that you're, uh, that you're doing this or that you're being a part of this, but what to do. So the narrative there also takes a kind of domestication uh, tone, right? And it talks about responding to a bomb is not unlike responding to a fire, <laughs> right? Or an automobile accident, right? These are all things that could happen in your daily life. Just add atomic bomb to the list, right? Uh, and come up with a plan for responding. So this kind of domestication uh, through both the use of animation as a technology and the narrative of the film is one of the, uh, the hallmarks. The other uh, thing that Jacobs talks about is the way in which this film acknowledges, and now we're kind of transitioning to... Um, uh, attitudes towards education, right? So the idea that you would have to respond as a child by yourself to an atomic bomb rather than through a teacher or some authority figure, right, is a real shift. It's a shift in uh, traditional social roles that is really part and parcel of the new atomic world, right? So what the film does is they assure children that grown-ups will be around. So I'm quoting from the film now. Older people will help us by the way, it's an adult narrator pretending to be a child, right? <laughs> Older people will help us like they always do, but there might not be any grown-ups around when the atomic bomb explodes. Then you're on your own, <laughs> right? So they can help you get across the street. They can help you find a shelter. But in that moment, what are you going to do uh, to respond? And so really kind of trying to heighten the alert of the children 
when you're on your own, be aware of, of when, this is, uh, when this is happening. So places like you can see the girl um, cowering against the uh, school building wall, right? It could happen in the schoolyard. It could happen when you're riding your bike in the neighborhood. It's Timmy or Tony, I can never remember his name, is riding his bike. He immediately drops his bike, right, and covers. So Jacobs talks about how um, in order to achieve these new social roles, really what the film has to do is make some traditionally idyllic childhood spaces kind of scary, right? If you're in the schoolyard or riding your bike, or right, an atomic bomb uh, could fall. So... He says this is sort of the dark side of uh, Cold War science education. This is a movie that tells a tale, I'm quoting now, of a dangerous present and a dismal future. Because, of course, then it begs the question, if you're around and the atomic bomb drops and you've done your duck and cover, when you come up, maybe you're still alive, (coughs) right? Maybe this is just the future in this decimated um, nuclear world. So... Duck and Cover is a film that, uh, that educates about the actual phenomenon, but also tries to persuade children that they can sort of have a response, that they have a social role on the home front to respond to this that goes beyond what any role would be of the military, say, to respond to a, uh, an attack, right? That they have some control. Pretty heady stuff for elementary schools. The lighter side of science education in this period, uh, kind of coming at it from the other angle, still addressed at children all the way through college students, but really focused on enhancing uh, funding and investments by the government in science research and science education. This is not new to the 1950s. This is something that, uh, that comes out of World War II. So the presidential uh, science advisor described here on the cover of Time magazine, the fact that the presidential science advisor is making the cover of Time magazine should tell you something. The fact that he's described as the general of physics, right, should tell you that this is sort of the vision of the future, that government will support research activities by public and private organizations, and in particular, science education, right? So the first thing to come out of this... uh, Vannevar Bush, which is his name, the general of science or the general of physics, has a, he heads a national science board that is rolled over into what is now the National Science Foundation. So the National Science Foundation becomes the first uh, um, uh, very big government foundation. There were National Institutes of Health before that, but this is really a big kind of pure research and education uh, funder. As the 50s move on... Uh, Sputnik, which you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, Sputnik, the satellite that the Soviets fired uh, into space that was cir- circling the, uh, right, the U.S., spying on us, really escalated uh, Cold War tensions between uh, the Russians and us, and in particular around the issue of what they would call today the pipeline problem. The pipeline problem is the idea that you need to have uh, people at every level of science education staying in science education so that we can build what they called uh, scientific manpower, right? Same language as the language of war, except with this, uh, with these uh, scientific manpower and woman power people are going to do is work for uh, research to, uh, to counter the Soviet threat. So in addition to Sputnik and kind of all the existing efforts for the government to fund science and push an agenda of uh, research and education. There was a massive economic boom after the war and a large corporate windfall, particularly at companies like uh, AT&T, right, and Bell, 
who were uh, science and technology companies, right? And the thought among those, uh, those companies was that some of this might be plowed back into promoting science education. As they presented it in public, and you can hear if you listen to the beginning of uh, Hemo the Magnificent, Why Are We Doing This? brought to you by AT&T to promote man's efforts to understand nature's laws. Well, yeah, that's all well and good. But um, the other push for this was coming from advertising agencies, which, of course, have ties uh, not just to advertising and, and communication media, but to, um, to Hollywood, right? So crossovers there. So in particular, uh, Marcel LaFollet and others have done research in these archives and shown that the agency, NWAIR, was pushing Bell to attract more family audiences, sort of hook them early on the brand, right? Uh, and then, uh, and then you'll have more. Uh, you'll have a bigger market as time went on. So, this led to uh, AT&T Bell Labs investing in a series of science films, which are among the most popular and widely held in classroom uh, collections, even to this day. They're still held, although they're not shown as much. And although you can see from the shape of the icons, they're in video now, VHS and DVD. So these would be uh, about various phenomena, our Mr. Sun, strange case of cosmic rays. Um, these are ones that uh, uh, Capra was involved in. I'll talk, talk about in a minute. Unchained goddess about the weather, right? And ultimately, it was eight one-hour programs and one half-hour programs over roughly a seven- or eight-year period through which, and drawing the analogy here between duck and cover and this, a similar kind of recruitment of top-level artists took place to produce these films. So it's kind of incongruous. It's less incongruous, I think, to focus on Frank Capra as doing his duty for the government to make a propaganda film than it is to imagine someone who's won three Oscars, <laughs> right, deciding that he's going to do uh, science films. So what gives? What gives with Frank Capra and uh, his directing and, and production of many of these films? First off, Capra, it was thought, had the perfect background for this. He actually had some science training. He earned his undergraduate degree from Caltech in chemical engineering in 1918. And during World War I, he taught math to uh, artillery recruits at Fort Scott in San Francisco. So he wasn't ever going to be a filmmaker. He, at the age of five, his family immigrated to L.A. He worked himself through college with odd jobs. And one day when he was working as a math teacher in San Francisco, he saw an advertisement for the opening of a, a satellite film studio. And he went and basically hustled himself in the door, right? Uh, let them think he had more experience than he actually did with cameras and various other things because he was interested in it. And that was the, uh, that was the thing that got the ball rolling. Now, he left, although he'd had a great deal of success in Hollywood in the 30s, as I mentioned, he left Hollywood uh, to enlist uh, in World War II and make these other films. Uh, he came back at a moment when his career was in a bit of a lull. Now, again, it sounds kind of incongruous because I think many of us remember him primarily for It's a Wonderful Life, which was made in 1946, which is a Christmas classic, a much-beloved film. At the time, it got kind of mixed critical reviews, And, and he was in a lull. So that's part of the explanation for why, uh, why he wants to do these films. The other piece of it, however, has to do with the fact that he was a deeply committed Catholic. And so we're going to see, when we look at these films, that influence. And I'll talk more about that as we, after we watch the clips. So another thing to say about Capra is later in his life, 
he reflected back on kind of what, what was it that made him a success. And he subscribed very strongly to what film studies scholars would call the auteur theory, right? The director has the vision, and the director is the one that, without any interference from right, uh, producers or anyone, recruits the writers, works in close contact with them. And so it's auteur theory, but it's kind of a team, right? The team is going to work together and closely. And he says this is the way that motion pictures can become more important and have something to say to the picture-going public. Uh, so he did that when he was uh, recruited to, to work for the Bell Laboratory series in several <coughs> ways. The first was he picked well-known actors. So uh, the character's name, even on the back of the DVD uh, um, box and, and in the script, is the fiction writer, played initially by a well-known TV character actor, Eddie Albert, and became more known as his uh, career went on. And then in some of the later Bell Science films, played by Richard Carlson, who would have been recognizable to, uh, to viewers from Creature from the Black Lagoon, right? Kind of a sci-fi uh, context. Interestingly, Carlson, uh, to kind of reinforce this idea of uh, the team that Capra had, Carlson directed some of the later films when, when Capra backed out. So there really was this kind of sense of, of collaboration. Similarly, if you thought you heard Daffy Duck, you did. Uh, Mel Blanc, uh, who was voicing many of the Looney Tunes characters, later voiced um, Barney Rubble on the Flintstones, was uh, part of the voice talent for this. Uh, and the animators, interestingly, headed by a production company run by Seamus Culhane, and underscoring the point here that we have people traveling from film culture into TV as an influential new medium, as a, as a place where they can sort of uh, work with really uh, other really interesting artists. So Culhane had a television program, an animated television program that he was making, Mr. Magoo, but he had participated in Disney's uh, Snow White, in animating Disney's Snow White, right? So it's kind of a long artistic legacy that's being taken from film to uh, science education for television. <coughs> So, okay, I want to I transition now to talk a little bit about the, uh, the plot structure and the characters. And this should um, be the most familiar to you because we talked last time about Frankenstein and Jaws, right? Who are the scientists? Uh, what do they represent? So the plot of Hemo is that the fiction writer, right, this guy, uh, in this case it's Carlson, the fiction writer creates cartoon figures and they're uh, animals alongside a Greek god figure they call their king, right? This is Hemo. Hemo the Magnificent is the king of nature, the king of the animals, but really the personification of blood, right? And Hemo and his cast of animals get into a conversation with the fiction writer and uh, the gentleman on your right, Dr. Research. Yes, he's actually called Dr. Research. There was not a lot of creativity with names in this uh, in this production. But all right, so Dr. Research, it turns out, is actually a, a University of Southern California English professor named Frank Baxter. Frank Baxter was, if you went to uh, school in the 70s, 60s and 70s, you're guaranteed to have seen one of his films, not all about English subjects, right? He had a sort of famous <coughs> series about Shakespeare that he did. So he became the sort of personification of the scientist, even though he is a doctor, he's not a scientist. Right? And Mr. Fiction, writer, and Dr. Research interact with the animals through a magic screen. Um, 
which is an interesting way to describe uh, a screen on which animation is projected, right? So Mr. Fiction Writer is kind of the wise guy, Joe Q public, right? He's always uh, voicing the concerns that the audience might have. Uh, he smokes cigarettes, right? He's a little twitchy. Dr. Research is very calm. He, he has a lot of the markers of a, a stereotypical nerdy scientist, thinking back to Fred McMurray and the Nutty Professor, right? The, the glasses, the calm, rational temperament, the uh, bland gray flannel suit, right? Much of the first part of the film is a discussion between the animated characters and the human characters about blood mechanics, right? And so it's a discussion that takes place partially in film and partially in animation. But about halfway through, there's a sort of pivotal moment where Hemo gets a little more confrontational, right? And he says, stop, we've just been talking about plumbing. And both the humans are sort of taken aback, right? Uh, what do you mean? And Hemo says, we're not going to go any further unless you can tell me the two words that unite the study of blood mechanics and the study of art, poetry, and nature. So Mr. Fiction Writer gets a kind of panic look on his face, and he says, Doc, let's not do it. <laughs> it's a trap. Uh, that only becomes a cliche later. Um, and he, he tries to get him to not do it, but Dr. Research is very calm. So let's watch the clip where, where this uh, goes down. Oh, or does he do it? Now, that's a good question. But before I can go into that, I'll have to tell you something about blood itself. Just a moment, brother scientist. So far, your chatter on plumbing has been uh, elementary but harmless. But now that you've come to me, I refuse to listen further unless you first describe me in just two words. I can. Never mind. Professor, mention the two key words. And I'll know you understand the poetry, the mystery, and the true meaning of blood. Otherwise, back to your plumbing. Hey, Doc, he's trapping us. Do you know what the two words are? Oh, you do? <laughs> the two words that best describe you and connect you with the mystical origins and traditions of life are seawater. Seawater? Brother Research, my apologies. You mean he's right? Listen to this learned man, and you'll hear a real tale. See why? Doctor, please tell them who I am. Well, thank you. It's only a theory, of course. Just I gotta see. But if you squeeze the human body as you would a sponge, you squeeze out some 30% of the body weight as about six gallons of free water, which we shall call body fluid. This squeezed out body fluid has a salt content of 1%. Tropical sea animals might exist in this aquarium of body liquid. Now the salts in seawater are like the salts in body fluid, as you can see. Although seawater today is two or three times saltier than body fluid. Some biologists account for this difference by saying that body fluids today represent the less salty composition of seawater as it was nearly 400 million years ago when life emerged from the sea and began to crawl on land. At any rate, a billion and a half or two billion years ago, life is presumed to have originated in the warmth of tropical waters as a minute, 
single-celled aquatic organism, something akin to the tiny living single cell we know today as the amoeba. This shapeless, jelly-like primeval cell absorbed its food and oxygen directly from the sea and passed out its carbon dioxide and other wastes to the warm ocean. In the beginning, Hemo was the sea. All right, so what we have there is, on the one hand, uh, Dr. Research articulating what he says is just a theory about the oceanic origins of blood. But that kind of linking of uh, the oceanic origins of blood with hemo, right, as the sea, is basically Frank Capra wading into the territory of evolution, right, evolutionary biology. And for Capra, there really is no divide between a scientific uh, vision of evolution and a religious appreciation for science and its view of evolution. And later on, uh, you can see Joe Q. Public, Mr. Fiction Writer, gets a little impatient with that, right? He starts to uh, challenge Dr. Research. He says, are you saying I'm just like all those germs? I'm different. And he does say, you are different. You have the human spirit. You are capable of doing science, right? Uh, and science is what links, right, all of these things. So kind of not what you expected, right? Something on evolution in a, a film about blood. Similarly, at the end of the film, Capra once again invokes uh, Christian imagery in a, uh, what's supposed to be an inspiring final statement on the possibilities of science and art. So let's watch that one, too. The challenge the spirit of man. And there are hundreds of others. But the men of science will solve them, Brother Hemo. Someday. Sure you will. What better way to love thy neighbor than to heal him? I've got my little set job and my little animal friends have theirs. But we're limited. Man's not limited. Your creation's favorite. You can imagine. Reason. Dream. Create. You know right from wrong. To use these divine gifts is your job. And all nature's waiting to see how you handle it. You're right, brother writer. Research into nature's mysteries could well become the most rewarding and far-reaching of all the arts. One of your greatest physicists, Max Planck, said that over the temple of science should be written the words, He must have faith. Your great apostle Paul wrote to his new church in Thessalonica, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. A scientist says, have faith. A saint says, prove all things. Together, they spell hope. Dream big. Take a lesson from your heart. So just in case you weren't getting it before the uh, hymn-like music started, right? So what's Capra doing here? He's really articulating uh, what he sees as fluid connections between science, art, and religion, right? So human exceptionalism, that's part of uh, uh, sort of the Western Christian tradition. But human exceptionalism, part of that is being given the divine gift to reason, right? And that juxtaposition of Max Planck saying, ye must have faith, that is to say, the religious thing, against St. Paul, right, saying, prove all things, 
the scientific thing, is meant to be sort of uh, a, a use of imagery that really blurs those boundaries. Really, and he doesn't see the blurring of those boundaries as a negative thing. He sees it as a hopeful thing. He sees it as a thing that could drive things forward in an inspirational way. Um, there's other imagery throughout the, this film and through other Bell Science films in which Capra was uh, involved. When we get to discussion, we can talk more about um, uh, how that shifted without his involvement. But So I do want to hear more about uh, what your reactions are. Uh, in the future when we talk about these films. But in the meantime, let's stay in the 1950s. What was the critical response to Hemo the Magnificent? So the critical reviews were not great, right? This is the review from uh, Time magazine. Hemo is a costly monument to the low opinion that some broadcasters hold of the viewer's intelligence, right? The thought that the film was condescending because it spoke to uh, potentially grade school children and really tried to interest them in silly ways, right? But then also, uh, the circulatory system discussion is really boring. Why is it boring? The time reviewer thinks that it's because he used more animation than film. So this is a case where uh, the reviewer says, by jazzing up right, the, uh, the story of the circulatory system, he threw a blight on scientific footage, right, film, that was as good as any of its kind ever televised. The effect was, you never want to get this next sentence in a review, right? Unhappily, that of a choice filet mignon smothered with gobs of mushroom sauce, right? Not a fan. Interestingly, the animation works in Duck and Cover in a different way, right? And there's probably ways that there could have been uh, film used, but there would have also probably had to have been film of animals, right? And probably that would have been a whole other set of issues to have to deal with in terms of um, doing it in good taste and censorship and animal rights activism, right? So Capra's choice to use animation rather than film kind of backfired in terms of the critical reviews. That said, this was a wildly popular series even when it came out. So in 1956, the very first one attracted 25 uh, million viewers that's not a lot by uh, today's... Actually, it is a lot by today's standards because now we have so many uh, fragmented segments of the TV market. But what was even more uh, remarkable is over the next 10 years, it found new life in classroom viewing. So this is a film that was exactly like the vision of the FCC commissioner, that it would go back from TV into the classroom. Capra got letters. Uh, uh, James Gilbert, a, a historian of American religion, has a chapter in his book uh, about, this, about these films. And he cites a letter from a viewer telling Capra it was, quote, not only fine entertainment and scientific education, but it was a religious experience. To combine all three was a stroke of some sort of genius indeed, right? So what's interesting about that is that I think people make assumptions about the relationship between science and religion after the Scopes trial in America, right? Because that was such a widely publicized media circus and that was such a clash right, between fundamentalist uh, perspectives and scientific perspectives. But in fact, what we get from watching this movie is a sense that there may be a kind of diversity of, uh, of popular ideas about evolution and the relationship with, uh, with science and with religion. So how did this film get made? <laughs> it got made largely because of Capra, but it was received the way that it was uh, for several reasons. And so Catherine Pandora who you, you read, 
talks about the way in which, again, you have to go back to television as a medium in development. The, the standards for different genres, science documentary, science education, right, inspiration, were still being formed. So this is part of the fact that these things are not settled allows Capra to come in and kind of work with those, right? James Gilbert has a different idea coming from the perspective of the history of religion. His idea is basically that there wasn't as big of a cultural divide, that in very prominent cases like the Scopes trial, uh, that was exploited as a strategy to kind of sell the controversy uh, by the media. But in fact, as Gilbert puts it, Capra did not have to build bridges between science and religion because they were already there. All he had to do was walk his films across them. Last but not least, we have the perspective of a, a folklorist, uh, Gregory Schrempf at Indiana University in the folklore department, basically says this film was able to be made because Capra was a premier storyteller, that really his focus was on storytelling and narrative, and he was exercising his artistic license to create a kind of new mythology, right? A quasi-religious sense of cosmic unity, mystery, and awe. So there are multiple theories for kind of not only uh, uh, why it got made, and, uh, but why it was received the way it was received, and why it continued uh, to have success over the years in classrooms. But again, uh, to conclude, by coming back to this larger lesson uh, that Catherine Pandora um, articulates so eloquently, some of what we do in this class is very much uh, science for the masses, right? Science for um, a popular audience. Pandora really warns us not to ignore science for popular culture, because when you ignore science for popular culture, you miss levels of complexity of thinking in, uh, she never says the public, because it's not a single entity, right? It's publics or popular culture. And using popular culture in a film like Hemo to understand that this was present really not that long ago, right? Uh, we're not talking about you have to go back to before the Reformation, right? We're talking about 1950s U.S., gives us an example uh, for why you need to study science and popular culture moving forward. That popular culture is not irrelevant, that science and popular culture interact. So with that, I'm going to leave you with some suggestions for further reading. Uh, if you want to follow up on science on television, Marcel uh, La Follet has written an amazing book, as has uh, Audre Wolf on uh, Cold War science and Catherine Pandora on the study of popular science and the history of science. So thank you for being here, and I will see you next week. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about history, literature, and public affairs, check out the Book Notes Plus podcast. You'll hear weekly interviews with historians and authors based on the concept of the long-running C-SPAN program, Book Notes. Find Book Notes Plus wherever you get your podcasts.